This is Dan Fagell, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. This is our use case episode. Every Tuesday, we cover different AI use cases across industries, sometimes vertical, sometimes horizontal. And today, we're going to be talking about conversational interfaces. Our guest this week is a returning guest from close to two years back. Abinash Tripathi is the CEO of HelpShift. HelpShift has raised over $50 million to bring conversational interfaces to various industries, including gaming and others. They work with companies like Microsoft and Zenga and some big brands. And as it turns out, when you work with giant firms and you've raised a lot of money, you learn a lot of lessons. So Abinash is farther along than he was two years ago. His previous interview, for those of you who want to look it up on SoundCloud or on iTunes, can find his episode about some of the challenges of AI deployment in the enterprise. He was really frank, really transparent about some of what can make AI deployments challenging. And I enjoyed the episode a lot. We've stayed in touch. HelpShift has grown a lot. They've, they've got a lot of excellent new customers. And Abinash shares his thoughts on what the realities are for what chat is able to do. So what is chat capable of today? And what are approaches that work and don't work when it comes to deploying chat in an actual enterprise? What are some of the hardships and some of the areas that aren't really tackleable? Uh, what are some of the problems that are solvable and how? Very few people have as much perspective on this as Abinash, and I'm glad we were able to have him back on the program. If you yourself are interested in chatbots, conversational interfaces, or other use cases of NLP, be sure to download our free PDF brief called Unlocking the Business Value of Natural Language Processing. You can download that free PDF. That's emerj.com slash NLP, and then the number one, um, and you can download that free PDF online there. Without further ado, we're going to fly into this episode. This is Abinash with HelpShift here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Abinash, uh, I want to dive in here on the topic of chat support. It's great to have you back on the show. It's been close to two years. The world has changed. Certainly, your product has evolved and your experience with, with clients has evolved. I want to go through chat support as a business problem and talk about how AI layers into it. Before we do that, maybe you could paint the picture as to how it's being handled by humans and what some of the biggest problems are with that. Yeah. So, Dan, thank you for this opportunity again. It was wonderful talking to you two years ago on on a variety of. We lift on a variety of. We topics went all, all over the, the place. From, yeah, yeah. We were all over the place, but I think today we'll be a little bit more focused. I think your question centers around what is really the business case for this sort of digital communication and chatbots, and why is the world so excited about it? what's the business case, right? So, I think for me, the the reason companies are so excited about this technology is that if you really think about how customer service is done worldwide, most customer service is done still in a human-to-human kind of a model, right? Where there's a customer, they call into a phone number, it's handled by a human sitting in a, in a phone contact center, and it's very expensive. Basically, it's a synchronous communication, right? Two human beings have to be connected synchronously, and they have to have a conversation one-to-one for an extended period of time. Usually the average hold time in a, of a single call in a contact center is about 20 to 25 minutes. Whoa. The per minute, yeah, the per call cost of doing customer service in this manner is anywhere from $7 to $10 per call. Got it. Right? So it's very expensive. So if you do the numbers worldwide, we spend about $1.5 trillion in customer service alone in this sort of human-to-human model. And this is a model where people have tried to automate and, you know, many things have been tried before, like speech recognition. I don't know if you remember calling like the Amex or the United IVR and then talking to a robot on the other side and the robot 
generally doesn't understand you very well. It has the same issues as Siri or Alexa. The, the, the understanding is not great, you know. It's a suboptimal experience. So automation has largely failed in this human-to-human voice or phone call kind of a model. I think in some sectors, it probably, some IVR solutions, you know, stating what your problem is, being routed to the right person. Some places have probably cracked it, but to your point, in some places, it, it might actually be more of a drag than not. So I would suspect there's there's some on both sides, but clearly it's a lot of humans still are in the loop here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been deployed for very narrow sort of use cases, yep. like for routing, right? So, okay, state your intent, which is like, hey, I want to uh, order, a, get a new credit card, or I need to file a claim for my insurance. The speech recognition is able to handle that, do the intent classification. So it does the routing. So a human doesn't have to use the IVR buttons to navigate that. And they can just say what they want. And then the routing happens off. But beyond that, everything for that process is handled by a human. And it takes time and effort on the other side to serve that request, right? So a lot of what we are doing is enabling the entire automation. So once you identify that you want to file a claim or you want to order a new credit card, right? That process can be automated entirely. You don't need a human in the loop for that, right? And digital technology allows you to do that. And so what we've been doing is helping brands really deflect or shift cost away from this expensive phone channel into a digital channel, right? And today, the most natural digital channel for every consumer to use is messaging, simply because if you think about your life, and how you lead your life, most of your communication probably happens through iMessage or Slack or WhatsApp or some form yeah, of yeah. asynchronous messaging. And, and consumers are doing that. It, it allows us to scale our communication. We don't have to, I don't have to be on a phone call like this with you unless it's a podcast interview, right? If I were to like talk to you casually and get your input or something, I would just message you and you yep. would reply back to me whenever you had time. So it's the most natural way to communicate. So Messaging, what we're observing is messaging is becoming a consumer trend and hence businesses have to adopt it. It's also the most natural place to embed this sort of automation that I'm talking about, right? That you can automate and orchestrate an entire automated fulfillment of a customer request without a human being very easily. And that's really what we're helping. And that's why the business case is so strong. And you deal with a lot of banking customers and you've heard all the banking customers build their own bots, whether it's Capital One's Eno or you know, the Bank of America. Yeah. And those bots don't really work very no, well, it's right? It's painful. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Wells Fargo's one is canceled. Ally Banks is canceled. By the time we published our report on the topic, it was like a month before we actually pushed publish, we had to edit it because a bunch of these things didn't exist anymore. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. a very tough problem. Wait, so hold on. Before the banking world went there, this happened in retail, right? Huh, so okay. I don't know if you... Uh, so I want to give you some background on this. Go for it. So... In the retail world, Macy's, all the all the big format stores that are closing down now post COVID, they oh. all had like automation and bot teams two years ago. They had like AI principals who ran these teams, and they tried to deploy these bots for Macy's, J.C. right, Sears, and none of those bots exist. All those people have moved on to find other jobs. Oh, Basically, they failed there. The banking guys just followed them into the same trap. They didn't study the failures of what happened in the retail world. They just tried to reinvent the wheel again. And I won't blame the banks for that. I would blame the vendors like IBM for that, right? They basically took a technology like Watson 
and they tried to shove it down all these banks throats and promised them the moon and the mars and the saturn and like you know uh, all kinds of like find yeah. the sky stuff and a lot of the cios who were it people they were not ai people in all of these banks basically i think were led down the wrong path by vendors right and that's mm-hmm. why they they basically went down that path and they're still down that path i see a lot of these banks still you know active with all of these bot projects 100% right? yeah i still see it yeah. maybe yeah. maybe not the same flurry as a couple of years ago but i i still see it as well and you know i don't know for sure which of them are capable there might be some that do some routing that actually is a value sometimes but undeniably the majority of them are going to be pretty tragic and what's worse is maybe they they won't even be able to extract the lessons learned and apply them elsewhere they're just kind of fold it which will be a real shame yeah. I want to dive into the way you folks have, uh, we just talked off mic about how your products has changed, which was a lot of fun to dive into. I want to talk about where AI fits in. But first, when it comes to how a human handles chat, are these often the same people in a call center or is it often a different group of people? I want to understand the workflow of a human chat support, right? Whether I'm with you know, a, a big retailer or I'm with my telecom company and I'm, I'm doing live chat to, to you know, solve my problem. Is that often a separate person? Walk us through, I guess, how their life is, the the life of that person handling customer issues. Sure, sure. Yeah, so typically if you look at how these, let's take an example of a telecom, right? How they operate. These telecom contact centers are very large in scale. Massive, massive. Anywhere from 10 to 25,000 agents is the size of these sort of telecom operations. Crazy. Typically the way it operates is 60 to 70% of the volume still continues to be on the phone, Right. So a lot of the agents are just like phone agents. And because phone and chat agents cannot do work, it's not the same type of work. The digital agents have to be a little bit more sophisticated. They use a different set of tools, right? They partition the two groups. So they have phone agents that deal only with phone calls. And then they have like e-care, what they call e-care or digital agents that handle all the digital channels. The digital channels may include email, live chat, Yep. Right, social media. So it's it's a variety of digital channels, but separate skill set usually in in a context. That center. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I could see how you know if you have a lot of questions to answer, the the things you're doing and have to be fast with are very different. Some people also just don't want to be on the phone, right? They're just not that kind of person. Yeah. So okay, makes sense. So these folks are just sitting there when a request comes through. They're just if they're the one in the queue, they're the one that gets it. And you know they're gonna they're gonna type back they're gonna answer things they're gonna grab resources they're gonna say you know is there anything else you need and if if they have to they're gonna route them to the phone folks but they're gonna try to tackle everything themselves is that more or less kind of a day in the it, life uh, yeah it it is so usually the way these contact centers work is that most of it is outsourced right simply because handling a phone call is roughly seven to ten dollars per interaction and you know you don't want to do that you want to move it to a low cost location so now. Philippines. You know, locations like yeah, Manila, Philippines, Huge. India, yeah. Bangalore, India, Portugal, Costa Rica—they've yeah. all become great locations to put your contact centers, and that's where most of these agents happen to sit. But a lot of companies, you know, have focused on building great contact centers in the U.S. and they will not outsource. Like take the USAA Bank, right? Who pride themselves for the best customer service experience. Yeah, yeah. They have offshore locations. They have all onshore U.S. agents sitting in contact centers all over the U.S. I think American Express is like that as well, if I'm not mistaken. Possible, possible. Yeah, there, yeah. Are, there are a few companies that, that don't want to go down the, the, the outsourcing. low-cost route. Yeah, they want the to. The low-cost route because they want to maintain a certain level of quality. Yep. Right? But it's, it's, often, um, it's often overseas, though, yeah. 
Now, now, now let's look at digital e-care, right? So e-care, if you think about live chat, it's no different from a phone call. It's still a session sort of conversation, right? You go on the web or you go to your mobile app and you say, I want to talk to an agent. You still have to go find an agent. And the agent has to be live with the customer. It's, it's a synchronous communication, right? And so you don't really get a lot of cost advantage from doing live chat as a brand. Right, live chat is still the phone call. It's just replicated on yep. the digital channel. Yeah, the, the human right? hours are more or less the same. Yeah, or I yeah, don't, I don't so know for so sure, like, but yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, I know for sure because I come from the. <laughs> You're right? in this world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The relative yeah. amount of time to resolve in telecom and banking with chat with with voice, I'm not exactly sure, but it sounds like for you that you know, there's sometimes functionally equivalent. Yeah. So so live chat really did give any of the brands like banks or telecoms, the advantage that they were looking for in digital, the optimization or the lower cost per interaction that they were expecting to get compared to the phone call, it was just a replication of the phone call. So what has happened though, is since the mobile era started with smartphones, right? consumers have gotten used to this new paradigm of communication called messaging, which is fundamentally different from live chat. Right? Today, think about you, Dan, Figuel, how you interact with your friends and family, when you use iMessage, right, it's not a live conversation. It could be a live conversation if the other party was available, right, to talk to you at that moment. But if they're not, you leave them a message, you go on with your life, they respond back to you, you're pulled back into the conversation through a notification, right? So this asynchronous form of communication we use everywhere in our lives, whether it's with our friends and family, or even at work with Slack and email, that's how businesses function today. All the communication is asynchronous, it's not synchronous. But contact centers, unfortunately, have not leveraged that technology yet, right? So they're still stuck in this very synchronous, old school, human to human sort of communication paradigm. Yeah, well, I, I guess and we're, we're about to pivot into where AI fits in and, and talk about sort of uh, approaches to layering onto this existing digital, but still kind of clunky and expensive process and, and, and bringing some efficiencies and hopefully better customer experience. But I, I can understand how you know, the, the asynchronicity, certainly the company wouldn't ever want to take very long to reply, but maybe they would want the opportunity to let the customer reply back whenever they saw the message. Hey, Susan, you know, we did see that. We've mailed you a new credit card. Let me know if you have any other questions. And maybe Susan messages back 12 hours later. That would be cool. But if Susan had to wait 12 hours to hear that they mailed a credit card, that would feel kind of bothersome. I take it what you mean is that the companies want to be able to wait for the customer response if that's most convenient for them? Yeah, so Dan, you, you're sort of right, but let me actually kind of tell you why this model is Yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead. So asynchronous messaging paired with automation or AI really is the answer, right? So why? Because 80% of the conversation that gets started in a, in a contact center is rote and re repeatable and routine and can be automated. They're all, they fit some sort of automation paradigm. So really what you want to do is if you detect a conversation that comes in through this asynchronous messaging channel as one that is a, fits a certain pattern, you could automate that fully. And it's a live conversation. The customer never has to deal with a human. Let's say he wants to uh, process a claim or file a claim or order a new credit card. It can all be done through a bot in that asynchronous messaging paradigm. They get what they want done. It's a task completion. They get what they want done through an automated sort of bot and they go away. It's a live communication, they go away. For the ones that are complex issues that no automation exists and you have to deal with a human, yep. typically that will take time on both ends, right? The agent has to go investigate 
what the real problem is, because it's not a standard problem. It cannot be answered live. They have to go do some investigation internally, and it's going to take time. Okay, okay. I see, want I the see. customer. Yeah. Yeah. So in an automation-first world, asynchronous messaging really proves to be amazing because it can, in an automation-first world, any conversation that can be automated has a live response because a bot is responding to it. Right? And it's doing it real time. It's doing it live in the messaging channel. Anything that's long running or anything that needs investigation, anything that's going to take time on both ends, the, the customer side, because they have to go troubleshoot something, or on the agent side, they have to go investigate something, right? is best suited for an asynchronous model. Because you're respecting the customer's time. You're not saying, stay on this chat session or stay on the phone for the next 10 minutes while I go look into it. You're saying, go on with your life. Talk to your friends and family. Go play a game of... Fortnite, and I'll get back to you when when I have an answer for you. Yeah, right? yeah. It would seem like if someone has a pressing issue in an ideal universe, we would we would simply be able to find the answer faster and handle it right then and there. However, to your point, there's plenty of instances where that's just not reasonable. We need to talk to a manager. We need to dig up some records. Maybe the search and discovery tool isn't exactly as we would wish, or the issue is just so complicated. We've got to talk it out with somebody, and so and so um, we want to be able or, to leave or, that or, conversation or, open. Or even simpler than that, the brand doesn't have enough agents to answer everything live. Yeah, yeah. So Which is yeah. usually the case, right? Yeah. Because think about it. There's usually more people coming in to talk to a brand than there are available agents. Yeah. That's why you always have the wait, hold for an agent problem in a contact center. Whether yeah. it's the phone or live chat, you're always holding because they don't have enough capacity to handle all the incoming yep. conversations. Well, so asynchronous to... is the most natural model, basically. I could see it, be, it being advantageous it's certainly some instances i'm sure you would agree being able to back and forth play tennis just get it resolved get off the damn phone or get off the chat that fits but asynchronous from what from what you're getting at asynchronous has a lot of fits for the things that don't fit that paradigm and can can really serve for a lot of other edge cases including when we just don't have enough agents being able to be asynchronous can can actually i want you to i want you to think about it this way asynchronous messaging is a superset of live chat. So the way you can make asynchronous messaging live is to have an agent available. So it all depends on your capacity, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. I like the framing. So, I'm cool with you. So and and the nice and the nice way to look at it is 80% of contact center stuff is simple, can be automated, right? It can be delivered through a bot. Anything that's complex, long running, can go through an asynchronous model with a human connection. But if you deem that that particular intent of the user requires immediate live response, you could prioritize that and you can assign an agent right away and it becomes a live conversation. It's kind of like your iMessage, right? In your iMessage today, let's say you messaged me and I have some time available to chat with you. You will see three dots dance on the screen. What that tells you is I'm available to talk to you in yeah, that instant. Yeah, yeah. If you don't see the three dots uh, you know, animate on the screen, you will just say, go to whatever I was doing. I'm not going to sit around and wait for Avinash to respond. Yeah. Right. Yep, yep. So you can, that three dots animating is the live chat basically in the asynchronous model. Now I'm kind of getting a bigger picture of, of where you're headed here. And, and uh, you know, I think that to this frame that you're stating, I think you're right to suspect that most people, when they think about AI in chat are thinking about synchronous only. Yes. But I can I can see where this fit is. So now we can pivot into AI. We can talk about, you know, we sure. talked about where this, this, person in the Philippines or in Georgia who's doing this manual chat work. Now, you know, we aim to bring AI into the mix. 
you know, to figure out how to make that routing work, to figure out how to get those responses to work. Um, you know, it's a complicated machine and, and none of this stuff is, you know, push button simple, but how do we get that set up? And what does the, the post AI workflow look like? We talked about the, the pre AI, what does the post AI workflow look like? Yeah. So the pre AI workflow is a lot. And the reason you're seeing all your banking friends sort of fail and shut down their bot projects is there are really two problems. Operationalizing all of this is a lot of human effort. Every company is realizing that to make a bot really work, the level of data collection, data cleaning, data annotation, training, right? And then the quality work that they have to do to get the bots to work without frustrating users is a lot of effort. Even after putting in all the effort, the results that they're seeing in these bots are akin to uh, Siri's level of quality. And Siri's level of quality is very, very low, right? Or Google Now or even Alexa, right? They can do very narrow things like, you know, playing music from Spotify. But beyond that, it's like, you know, they just can't sustain a human conversation. No, a yeah. conversation. They're suited for what they're suited for, but they're not suited for, you know, the kind of things you and I are going to be talking about. Real, real customer exactly. service, more in-depth stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why you're seeing all these sort of first, what I call the first generation bot technology fail because they tried to apply a conversational approach to the entire conversation. They tried to create these bots that were super intelligent, that understood all aspects of the customer service conversation. And the approach we took was very different. We kind of broke the problem up into two parts. You really needed to think about it as how do I actually take what the customer is saying and make sense of it, right, using AI techniques and then use it to route to a sort of a workflow, right? Typically in customer service, everything is a known workflow. So you go into Comcast, you say my internet is out, right? If you say your internet is out, there are troubleshooting steps. Literally it says, have you turned off your router? Are the lights on in your router, yes or no, right? So there's this decision tree that you walk through, which is very static, right? It doesn't need a lot of intelligence. Some human has curated that workflow, right, to say, if there is an internet out event for Dan Fiala, then walk down this tree. Somewhere in this tree is the resolution, yeah. right? So what we did was build the AI in such a way that when Dan Fiala comes to Comcast and says, my internet is out, right? The AI can say, ah, oh, Dan's internet is out. I need to connect that to a troubleshooting bot. And that troubleshooting bot really knows how to walk down this decision tree. You know, first question to ask is, are the lights on your router on? right? Have you recycled power and reset your router? Yes, no. So it's it's a sequence that you follow. And it's very deterministic. It's very sequential. It's very symbolic. You don't need to go off in different directions to be super intelligent, right? So that's why our approach has worked really well. And IBM's just published a lot of research on this. It's called neurosymbolic, right? This whole cognitive approach is fraught with problems. And so the neurosymbolic approach is catching a lot of attention in the AI world right now where you're combining the neurological or the brain aspect of deep learning, machine learning with the symbolic approach of programming, right? Which is time tested for simple stuff, right? You can write a program to accomplish a simple task, right? And, and then combine the two to provide the desired result to the customer. You brought up something before we got on the microphone that I thought was really useful for understanding how we bring AI into this workflow. You had mentioned you know, working with a client, you'd get a huge backlog of the kind of chat conversations that they'd have and leverage artificial intelligence to determine through sort of clustering and determining what's, what's you know, in these various conversations, what are the main clusters and then the, the sub clusters underneath those main ones? 
you know, for that, that particular client. So that AI was even a part of building out this sort of tree structure that you're articulating. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what that looks yeah, like too. Yeah. So basically, if you think about how to operationalize a conversational AI or a chat, chatbot, the first step of that is being able to identify the candidates for automation, right? And to do that, either you can have a data scientist you know, go through all the transcripts of customer service conversations you've had in the past manually or through some sort of algorithm. And usually for companies, it's a lot of work. They have to collect all that data. They have to run it through some models. If they don't have the talent to run it through models to like identify all the repeating sort of clusters or patterns in the data, we haven't found any company be able to do that successfully. Then it's a lot of manual work to even identify the candidates for automation. If you can't do that, usually you're going to get off to the wrong start, right? So you're going to try you're going to try to build a chatbot that doesn't really meet the needs of customers uh, or majority of the customers' problems. So we have built an AI that basically can take unstructured text, usually as transcripts that come from customer service, either from a chat transcript or an email transcript or a phone call that's been recorded into a text transcript. And our unsupervised AI is able to you know, basically cluster topics and suggest the highest candidates for automation to the organization. Once we're able to show that to our customers and say, hey, these are all the candidates for automation, we're able to take the same data that was given to us for identifying the automation candidates and build something called the intent tree, right? So if you look at customer service, the IVR menu, even though it may appear dumb, it's not really dumb. A lot of thought has been put into designing a menu that walks customers through the most common problems yeah, that they yeah. faced in customer service, right? And so this AI model that we built essentially helps you build the equivalent of an IVR menu in your chat. So it allows customers to pick an intent and start their entire journey for customer service with an intent, right? So if in the case of banking, it could be like, hey, I want to open an account. I've lost my card. What should I do, right? Or in the case of insurance, it may be like, I want to buy insurance, I want to like file a claim, right? So each industry has its set of common intents or patterns, yeah. right? And each brand may have something very specific to it, right? So for example, you know, let's say a hotel chain buys another hotel chain and they merge the loyalty programs. You know, for a period of time, there's probably customer service volume around just how do I move my points from one uh, loyalty program to the other, right? And and that may be one of your top intents that you're dealing with for six months to a year. And so this sort of IVR menu, I'm, I'm trivializing it, right? Can be very, very dynamic and sophisticated because if it is built right, it's it's catering to, you know, what is the sentiment of that customer base at that given point in time, right? And yeah. and we're using AI to do that. Got it. And and okay. Yeah. It's sort of like I used the analogy with you before in our previous conversation that maybe if I'm looking to buy something on an e-commerce store, sometimes I want to type all the words and hope that it's going to come up with a, with exactly what I want. But sometimes it's just easy to have a drop down that just says, take me to the you know jeans or take me to the shoes or, or you know, it's just easier to just click. And so what you're articulating is that with the 80-20 rule here, a lot of initial conversations can just be put into a bucket. And we know how to route and respond to those things if we put it in the right bucket and that AI can help to cluster and, ha and have humans make a final decision about what are those initial, you know, as you had said, IVR menu items. Yeah, I mean, search for something like Google, where you have to search billions of websites 
you know, a blind search is helpful to narrow down your selection, right? But if you're in a e-commerce storefront or if you're in customer service, an ontology or a visual representation of information along with combined with search is a very powerful paradigm for a customer to like select what they're looking for, right? And in the web world, it was called faceted browsing, right? So where you're able to show an ontology and, and you can walk down a tree. So it's combined with search. And like, if you look at Amazon's e-commerce storefront, right? There is a search box and you can search for a specific product, but you can also have this hierarchy of the mini stores in the storefront that you can go to. Like you can go to the, the you know, the kitchen section and go to the food section and all of that stuff and, and browse the items in that section as well, right? So that's essentially in an AI world, you know, if you look at how conversational AI deals with it, they think of it as a blind search problem. I think of it as a faceted browsing problem, not a blind search problem. Yeah. And in terms of the analogy that, again, we used a little bit off mic, and, and if you have, we can close on this, but I think maybe this is a good little touch point. The, the analogy was that this is sort of how Alexa works. Alexa does not have a gigantic conversational ability. It simply determines your intent based on whatever the statement is, and then it runs whatever the program is or, or does whatever the program does for what that intent is. So you say, you know, you can say, play me XYZ song or something. And maybe, you know, the phrase play me is going to tee up a couple different skills and it'll know which, which skill to sort of run. And then it'll just run whatever the song is that you said. And now it plays it. It's not because it understands the words. It's because it gets intent number one and it gets intent number two. And then there's your result. From what you're articulating, that's sort of what the future of, of chat when it comes to AI is doing as well on some level. Yeah, right. I mean, basically what Alexa is doing is it's trying to identify the intent with high level of confidence. And then once the intent is identified, it, it hands off that to a skill, right? So it invokes a skill and a skill is a very narrow sort of program that's been written to like solve that particular intent, right? So that's sort of the paradigm I'm talking about. But, you know, there is some difference, right? So if you really think about conversational chatbots, the idea of that emerged from voice ASR world, right? A lot of this was being solved in the speech recognition world. So this whole notion of doing utterances and then you know, intents and then entity extraction and slot filling, all of those are old concepts that came from the speech recognition voice bots world, right? Unfortunately, that paradigm is not great for digital, right? Chat is a digital surface. You get to use the richness of a user experience that's digital. I can embed a lot of UI paradigm. I don't have to rely on just the user's words to discern what they're trying to say. I can show them a widget. I can make them pick stuff which you can't really do in a speech interface, right? So the whole model of using the old school speech recognition way of solving this problem is sort of broken. And that's sort of why all these bot projects that the banks embarked on that you're familiar with, like Wells Fargo, are failing because the models they're using are, are basically conversational AI models that came from a speech recognition world, right? So those vendors that were selling speech recognition technology in the past, tried to build chatbots for digital services. I don't know precisely if they all failed for the same reason. And in fact, I'm, I'm aware of a whole bunch of different reasons why those projects might have flopped. But to your point, trying to go cognitive the whole way through, I think might have been a tripwire for many of these folks. I don't think that that's worked all that well for 
almost anyone. I mean, if Amazon can't pull it off, you're pretty unlikely to do it as Citizens Bank for crying out loud. So, yes, yeah. I mean, the easiest way to talk about it, Dan, is that for Alexa, do you know how many human annotators there are that Amazon has deployed all over the world to like annotate and oh, yeah. correct the mistakes that Alexa makes? Oh, yeah. We, what we, is the number? Man, I don't know the number, but if you have it, I'd love to hear it. It's tens of thousands of human animals. Oh yeah. Oh that that yep, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, we've done right. I mean, we run we run advertising programs and, and kind of, you know, even sponsored podcasts on this show with with companies like Appen, for example. And th- there's a variety of players and sort of the the click workers and th- these folks that are manually labeling data because yeah, and big tech is the big whale that you want to chase if you're in that business because they have an unlimited amount of incoming streams that need that labeling and Yep, that's that's what undergirds it. Unfortunately, I don't think most banks have that kind of budget. Yeah, yeah. So that's why this this sort of approach that you're articulating is is uh, potentially a, a better way to skin the cap than than trying to boil the ocean as a bank or as a whatever. Yeah, yeah. Got it. And can I turn the table on you for a second and oh, say yeah. you sure the banks that are probably a variety of reasons these chatbot projects are failing in the banks is what you mentioned. Yes. That actually made me a little curious, and I'm like. Dan, what do you know that I don't know? <laughs> okay. Oh, man. All right. Well, podcast listeners, this is the, the first time I'm getting asked questions on the show, uh, but I'm, I'm, not so coward- <laughs> I'm not so cowardly that I'm going to avoid it. I'll go ahead and I'll humor you here, Avinash. So a number of things. So one of which is sort of not having sufficient resources allocated to uh, two parts of the early process. One is setting realistic goals. So somebody in the C-suite or whatever is actually saying yes to spending money. But that person almost never has an understanding of how much manual labeling, how much shaping and crafting of our conversational ontologies is going to have to happen, how much time it's going to take just to work through our past data and potentially label all that stuff. And so the initial hurdles and the initial expectations just simply aren't set off the get-go within financial services. Yeah. And I would imagine it's the same in almost all, all companies. So, so what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing, Dan, is you're saying they treat it just like any other IT project yeah. and they don't understand that it's not yet another IT project. It is something that's a completely new way of yes. doing work. AI is yeah. not is not IT, is the saying that one of our past guests, Charles Martin, has said, and I steal that phrase from him all the time. AI is not IT and, and really have a, a fundamental understanding of these new core capabilities we're going to build is a big part. So that's one part. Another similar limitation of that executive crowd, and it's not because they're they're not brilliant people, and it's not because they don't have the company's best interest in mind, but another thing that isn't understood is the fact that even if this is a struggle and a wrestling match, we are going to be building capabilities that are going to be unlocking potentially future value. If we have a better understanding of our customer service data, if we're getting our subject matter experts and our data scientists to work together, we're building that there's, you know, we've broken down kind of the, we have an article called Critical Capabilities prerequisites to AI deployment. Anybody that wants to Google it can find that article probably pretty quickly. But we've broken it down to a whole bunch of different categories from from skills to resources to assets. But there's a whole bunch of these things that we can actually build up in our company. Many first projects are going to fail, but we can still walk away with a big thumbs up potentially if we can start to build some of the critical skills we're going to need. We're going to stumble in these early projects. Again, 
that is not how IT works. IT is, well, I'm going to give you this and you're going to give me this much more money and we're not learning anything here. You're just giving me a damn yeah. result. And, and so the dynamic for expectations, the dynamic of capabilities, those core underpinnings by themselves, if executives understood those things in robust depth, I would say, in my personal opinion, a lot of the other ducks would fall in line. Now, the other potential issues here, and I think this can still be stemmed from that same executive problem, is that the initial cross-functional teams aren't really well staffed enough. So we have a poor expectation of how many people are going to be required. Oh man, we need that many people to clean the data? No way. Or, oh, we need, we're, we're not just going to be able to knock on the door of customer service and ask questions every now and again. We're going to have to pull people from those departments to live in this project, to live with our data scientists and to, to breathe this, not to, not to answer some questions on the weekend, but to, to full-time move from customer service functionally into this project and be the subject matter expert. We need that actual ownership, that kind of subject matter champion, you know, even these dynamics aren't understood. So those initial teams often aren't able to get enough traction as well. But for me, a lot of the problem goes right up to the top. On your side, right. obviously, there's also some technological approach issues, which you've brought up. On our side, a lot of things seem to stem from missed expectations. Interesting. Wow. that's And I've read that note that you wrote on critical capabilities, and I recommend everybody should read it because it's 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 so true. I mean, basically, I don't think organizations really understand that IT is a different way of doing work and that they've never done before. And they basically manage an, an AI project like an IT project, right? So that's really where things start to break down. Big time. Yeah, it's tough to set those expectations. And to be frank, Avinash, maybe this is a good wrap up on this particular topic today. I think it's going to be the vendor ecosystem, folks like yourself, the consulting firms, if they're smart, who are going to have to bring not only the cutting edge tech, but also bring a bit of education as they come in anchor the right expectations, anchor people in, in knowing that there's a virtue in accessing and understanding our data, not just for this one vendor project, but for the company as a whole. You know, some of them, some of these, these execs are reading our newsletters, listening to our show, but I think a lot of them are going to have to have it taught in real life hard lessons from working with companies. So my hope is folks like you keep raising money and working with people, the upstairs people <laughs> are going to get smarter and smarter and, and we'll finally start to see more and more move into deployment. So that's my, my secret. Well, I, I have another thought, which is failure is the best teacher, right? So a lot of these projects, you will try, you will fail, and then you will basically hopefully go and ask the question as to why you failed, and you'll figure out that, that there's a better way to do these things, right? And there'll yes. be vendors like us who will, you know, like we talked offline, uh, provide a very consultative approach and an educational approach, because what we're realizing is that even the largest companies don't really have the skill set, they don't have the mindset, yeah. And it takes a lot of education and training to get them to see how to do these AI projects well. Yep. It sure as heck does. And so companies initially get a little bit gritty about having to put on the white gloves, but you know that's part of the process for now. And uh, it's going to be for at least the near term. And certainly more and more interactions, even some failures, so long as people have the right mindset, will eventually get there. So anyway, Abinash, I know that's all we had for the the use case oriented interview here today, but it's been a real pleasure having you back, man. This was a nice, fun chat. I know. We always jive with each other. So thank <laughs> you so much for the opportunity again. Take time. And, and, and thank you for, I mean, you know, I know it's atypical for an interviewee to ask a question, but, you know, I was really curious because you deal with a lot of, you know, the banks that, that we want to do business with. And of you course, have so much knowledge there that, you know, I really wanted to understand what was on your mind there. 
yeah, all good. All good, brother. So that's all for this Tuesday use case episode here on the AI in Business podcast. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. I really enjoy the energy that Avinash brings to these interviews. Again, he was a great guest a couple years back, and it's a real pleasure to be able to have him back. That's one of the fun parts about running a podcast for a long time. I was just speaking to one of our podcast listeners who's now applied to be a Catalyst member here at Emerge, who's listened to the show for some three long years and talking about all the changes in the show's format and the audio quality over the years. And there sure has been a lot, but one of the cool things is being able to have continuity and bringing old guests back. I want to make sure that you don't miss out on any of our future episodes. By the way, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, be sure to do so. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to stay subscribed and follow us on social. Not only are you going to see all of our latest podcasts as they go live, but all of our latest reports and articles and best practice guides and even some of our infographics around finding AI ROI or organizing and prioritizing AI projects that's all released on our social handle. So it's Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research at LinkedIn and Facebook or just at E-M-E-R-J on Twitter and you can stay in touch with us there. And I'm sure if you listen in for another two years, we'll have Abinash back in to talk about future developments in chatbots. And I'm secretly hoping that that does indeed happen because I think there's a lot of progress yet to come down the pike in terms of how chatbots are actually used and deployed. Be sure to stay tuned for Thursday. We're going to be going into our Making the Business Case episode and we're going to be talking about buying and selling AI in an enterprise level and what it takes to really get a deployment and get an enterprise leader, an economic buyer to get to yes. So be sure to stay tuned in two days and I will look forward to catching you then.